We must search for what is truth. You doubt me. Seek proof. What is truth? And what is God? The first duty is to the truth, whether it's scientific truth or historical truth or personal truth. Then here is the proof you seek. You don't really want an answer to that question. Welcome to the AXPX Podcast, honest conversations about faith, doubt, disbelief, hope, and everything in between. I'm your host, Sean DeRegger. I want to welcome all of you new listeners. I've seen an increase and since I've started the season, and it's been very cool to see and dialogue with those of you who've been listening. I know a lot of you came on board with the music uh, series with the David Bazan episode in particular. And I want to thank those of you who stuck on. (laughs) If you like what we're doing, I do have a Patreon. It's only a dollar a month. And I do a weekly bonus podcast called the AXPX Diaries. It's something a little more personal. And the weekly format, I'm trying to get back into it. We got a new puppy recently. And the kids have started school. So I'm trying to get back into the routine but if you want something a little more personal that's something you definitely want to check out and it's only a buck a month well this week we are wrapping up the series ask me about my feminist agenda this will be the fourth episode in the series i want to encourage you to check out the other episodes last week i was talking with my wife jennifer it's just a really fun conversation to have with her and spend time with her and actually record that conversation really dug it um and then there's a couple podcasts before that you definitely gonna want to check out. Not necessarily in any order, but um, we're excited to get to today's episode. I'm talking to uh, my friend and co-host from the Screamcast, BJ Colangelo. B.J. Colangelo is many things, a film and stage actress with an incredible singing voice, a horror journalist for Birth, Movies, Death, Bloomhouse, as well as Playboy. She found a sickening pictures with Zach Schildwachter and is currently in post-production on their first feature-length film, Powerbomb. B.J. is also a cancer survivor. Most importantly though, B.J. is my friend and a true inspiration in my life. A woman with wisdom beyond her years, her strength, as well as her transparency, has spoken volumes into my life. Today, I have the pleasure to speak with BJ Colangelo about her battle with pancreatic cancer and how horror films helped in many aspects of her healing and empowerment. So you and I have known each other you we've been talking quite a bit for probably gosh how long has it been now for the screamcast uh for that it's it's been it's been like probably like two at least two years yeah and we had known each other online at least a year before that so at the very least we've been friends for over three years yeah yeah it's it's pretty incredible i always whenever i talk to twitter friends you know right it's, it's <laughs> incredible how you know through the the podcast and stuff like that how we've become you know really good friends and you've become probably one of the you know um 
someone I really look up to when it become when it comes around to talking about you know feminism or just a strong being a strong woman. Like I'm always you know cons- uh, always wondering like, what you would think about certain subjects and, th- and things like that. And you know we've we have a really cool relationship where you can call me out when I'm a when I'm being a dick online or anything like that. So <laughs> I like to think that you're you're like my conservative older brother and not conservative like in the political (laughs) sense but like I'm like your crazy wild weird art school little sister (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) definitely so it's no it's it's been great uh, especially to get to know you through doing the screamcast because you know um it's you and then and Brad my other other co-host like you guys have become like really two really good friends in my life. Like two people I talk to probably the most outside, you know, probably my wife and, and, and everything. So yeah, you guys are family. Um, yeah. So it's, and, but we've never actually met in person, which is so strange, but I guess that's becoming more and more the norm. I yeah. mean, there are people that I've known because of the internet for over a decade that I Mm -hmm. would consider myself closer to than people that I see every single day at work. And I think it's the distance that almost allows you to connect on a more intimate level because there isn't any of the nonsense of, you know, oh, well, today was terrible or, oh, traffic was bad, so I can't hang out with you kind of thing. Like, Mm -hmm. you guys are always at my fingertips. Like, I can talk to you whenever I want, regardless of the situation. And because we're so far apart, there isn't any of that, like, hard feeling of, oh, well, like, I have to go do this, that, and the other. I can't hang out with you. Like, that doesn't exist. So every time we do communicate, it's usually on, like, a very deep and intellectual level because there's no no need for small talk when you're not face-to-face. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a really incredible phenomenon, and I mean, I I've been on Twitter since two thousand eight, so so that's almost a decade. That's ridiculous, and I'm like time is just flying by. <laughs> Lately, I mean, my daughter's twelve, and you know, Twitter. I've been on Twitter for so long, and it just feels like it's still new, you know. But it it seems like a weird thing for people to have these connections and these relationships online but now when when i finally when i slow down and think about it it is it makes so much sense and in a way it's kind of how like my wife and i met you know my wife jenna who was on the last episode like are the first month and a half we spent just calling each other because that was pre-twitter everybody i don't know how you young kids date nowadays (laughs) uh, they just swipe on each other's faces (laughs) yeah but we you know we we did have to cut out kind of the awkward hangout, you know, small talk. And it was just straight on to just conversation about everything. And there's not that face to face awkwardness, I guess, to get in the way people can really, if they choose to let down their guard easier online. And, and I've, I've developed some really great friendships and, you know, some deep friendships. And we've, we've had a couple friends, you know, uh, we've lost a couple friends along the way, you know, right. Um, and it's it's always so weird when somebody does pass that you may have not known in the physical sense mm-hmm. because like for example if my next door neighbor got hit by a car tomorrow like it would have no effect on me that's not to say that i don't like my next door neighbor i just don't yeah. have any connection with them and i see them every single day but you know then there are people like like Dustin Pace who i had never met in person but i talked to 
on like a very deep and intellectual level every day. So when we did lose him, it was it was devastating. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a lot easier for people who are kind of from the age of the Internet to understand. Like my parents don't understand it. But I think anybody that's like 30, like 40 and younger that that do use the technology, I think they understand that and they get it. Um, So I'm actually very curious to see how these interpersonal relationships for the younger and younger generations where the Internet is their main form of communication, how that's going to affect them. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. Um, So. So I've known you for a few years, and one of the first things that I learned about you was um, you've been very vocal about your um, your battle with cancer, and mm-hmm. I wanted to talk with you briefly about that because because well not briefly there's no time limit but um <laughs> you know but but I I feel like you know things that we all go through in our lives make us who we are and you are probably one of the strongest women that I know and someone that I look to for advice and I would send someone to, um, to talk to if they needed advice about, you know, feminism and things like that. And I, and I, I want to say that that's part of it, but I wanted to kind of hear your story and talk about that. So what was, what was your life like before, um, you started your battle with cancer? And if you can just bring us through that, Okay. Yeah, I can Um, definitely do that. Um, So I have kind of a unique upbringing. Um, My parents are not religious in the sense that they're not practicing. My parents both do believe in what would be considered the Christian God. And their religion probably is more closely aligned with Lutheran. Um, My dad's hardcore Italian, so there is kind of that Roman Catholic uh, upbringing sort of sprinkled in there. Um, But their parenting style was very much, I was baptized to appease my grandmother, but I never went to church. (laughs) Um, But I did go to Bible camps in in the summer because that's what all my friends did. And that was the only way for me to see my friends is to go to vacation Bible school. Um, and I'd sing the songs, but it never really clicked with me. Like that was just never me as a person. Um, but my dad was also a, a politician and our family was under scrutinous light Mm -hmm. for all of my upbringing. And my parents are both what I would consider like liberal Republicans, like they're very conservative in the way that they vote fiscally. But as far as like civil rights and anything of that sort, they're like very, very, very liberal. Yeah, but more of the moderate side. I guess. Yeah, I like more moderate. But I mean, like my parents do watch Fox News and like every once in a while I have to remind them, like, you know, that this is. This is what fake news actually is. Okay, let's move on from that. <laughs> um, but growing up, we always had kind of a, a microscope on us because when your parent is involved in politics, you know, internet or no internet, people are waiting for the day that you screw up or the day that something can be held against them, no matter how big or how small. And people are relentless and they will look towards children. I mean, we did it with 
Barbara and Jenna Bush. So why why would it not be the same in like a small town level? Yeah, they're they're doing so very, with poor little Baron now. Poor right, Baron it's, Trump. Leave the kid alone, everybody. Yeah, it's let the kid wear a goddamn t-shirt. <laughs> he can't pick his parents. Like, just let him go. He's a kid. Yeah. Um. So from a very very young age, I had to learn how to act and not act in the sense of like, I needed to deceive people, but I knew that like, I could never be that kid who threw a tantrum in the grocery store because we didn't get fudge sickles. Like I could never be that kid because it very well could end up on like the talk of the County part of the newspaper of, Mm -hmm. I saw, you know, Mr. Colangelo's daughter in the store throwing a tantrum. If he can't control his children, how can he control a community? (laughs) Like it, and it's that kind of shit. So, um, from a very, very young age, that was something that I, 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 I took great pride in was that I was never going to give the people in my community a reason to talk negatively about me, like Mm -hmm. no matter what. And um, that sort of carried over as I got older, I then developed kind of this incessant need to be successful. And I was like, I was Tracy Flick from election. I was in every club. I was not only in every club, I was captain of every club. I was on the honor roll. I, you know, I was a world champion baton twirler. I did beauty pageants. I did show choir, like anything that I could do to make myself look and feel like the center of attention and then deservedly the center of attention. I did it. And I think a lot of that was, you know, partially because I'm a perfectionist, partially because I wanted to prove to people that I was making my own way in life and that I wasn't getting things handed to me because of who my father was. And um, that that's definitely the building blocks and the foundation of everything that I am is desperately trying to prove to people like, I made my own way, that I don't need anybody, that I don't depend on anybody. And my mother was never particularly a very like staunch feminist, but she was never a like a submissive wife. She was never a doting wife. She did what she wanted to do the way that she wanted to do them. And it was it was never presented to me like a message. That's just Mm -hmm. how things were. And I always admired that about her. And as I got older and started to learn, you know, that that's not the case for a lot of people that a lot of my friends' moms were, you know, living in these loveless marriages because they felt they had to or about, you know, how many of my friends' moms gave up on their dreams because their husband decided that they couldn't have them anymore. And that just was mind blowing to me that people live that way and I told myself like that's never gonna be me like I I want to be like my mom I want to do what I want to do because that's what I've chosen to do and not because anyone has told me that's the way that it has to be so um I think it was probably when I was about 15 15 or 16 um I had gone through something really traumatic. I mean, we can go back to that later, but I went through something really traumatic when I was 14 and I 
definitely spiraled out of control. I went on a very selfish path of self-discovery. Um, I did a lot of experimenting with drugs and alcohol, um, with men and women, just trying to do anything to make the pain that I felt from my traumatic experience go away. Because for all intents and purposes, I had never experienced something bad, mm -hmm. and then I experienced something really bad, and I had no coping skills. Um, and that's also kind of when I look towards horror films, like they're very therapeutic for me in getting through that. Um, but one day I just kind of woke up and realized like, this is not the kind of person I want to be. Like, I don't want to be this person with like absolutely no control of their life. And I kind of took that control back and, you know, really came into my own. And at that point, like I'd been through the ringer, I had been through everything and I couldn't even vote for the president yet. And I just had already endured so much. So by the time I got to college and everyone else is, oh, I'm experimenting with this, that, and the other, like I already knew my way around it, knew how to protect them, knew how to like be kind of that maternal figure and take care mm -hmm. of people. And that's, um, I think though, like that's where the balance came into play of, I know what it feels like to be carefree and a firecracker and mm -hmm. completely out of control and doing everything that you want and being super selfish. And I know the balance of taking care of other people and being understanding and respectful and, you know, somewhat maternal. And I think that that all combined is what makes me, you know, the feminist that I am. Nice. Yeah. Did you find yourself kind of taking care of your friends when they started you know, experimenting as, as well. You, you, so you kind of fell into this, uh, I don't even know the term mother hen. Yeah. It was like <laughs> the mother hen, friends. the den mother with all my friends. <laughs> um, like that's the nickname Auntie Beach comes into play from that <laughs> okay. a lot. Um, yeah, no, really, really what happened is when I was, when I was at my worst, when I was probably 15 or 16, I, was going through so much pain and for me like I forever associate that pain with you know like drug addiction or alcoholism mm -hmm. or any of that like I think about the pain that I felt and I never want anyone else to ever experience that so yeah. even when people are oh I'm at a party I'm gonna try Molly for the first time like I'm <laughs> I'm immediately going to want to be the person that's like, okay, and here are your crackers and here's right. some water and here's something to cover your eyes because you're going to be super sensitive when you wake up in the morning and I don't want you to get a migraine. <laughs> so I've got some ibuprofen set out for you. Only take two. Anything more than that's going to give you a stomach ache. Like that just becomes, you know, what I want to do because yeah. the, I know that there are so many people out there that one don't know how to take care of themselves. People just don't have life skills anymore. Um, and two, I want people to always remember that no matter what, like somebody out there does care about you and somebody yeah. wants to help you. And if I can be that person, I'm going to be that person. That's awesome. So when, so when did you discover, um, when did the cancer come in? Like when did you discover, like, how'd you, how'd you find out? Um, and you had a rare, more of a rare cancer too, like something that yes. have a high survival rate. Yes. So Cancer. Let's see. Mm. Um, 
So let's talk about cancer. Everybody. <laughs> let's talk about the big I mean, C. Yeah. Um. So I was properly diagnosed with a f- very rare form of pancreatic cancer when I was 23 years old. The doctors estimated that it started growing in my body when I was probably about 19. Hmm. And there's obviously no way for them to be sure, but based on like the intervals of my scans and the growth patterns, that's kind of the estimation they all have is like probably right around the time I started college is when I started growing a tumor. So, I found the cancer by pure luck, and that's the only way to put it. I mm. I really am hesitant whenever people say, oh, it was a miracle, oh, it was this. It's luck. It's pure luck. And it was a series of events that led to me finding it. So the first thing that happened is that I moved to Cleveland after living in Chicago, in the Chicagoland area, my entire life. Um, I moved to Cleveland in August. I was diagnosed in January. So keep that in perspective. (laughs) Um, (laughs) When I moved to Cleveland, I didn't know anybody. I knew my boyfriend who I was living with, and, you know, I kind of knew his family, and that was really about it. So I moved to a new place, you know, two time zones away, and I knew nobody. And me not knowing anybody also means that I sure as shit didn't have a general practitioner. Yeah. So I had auditioned for a musical in September. So like a month after I'd moved there. And I got cast as a lead in a musical. And I was, you know, on completely, I was completely on cloud nine. Like I had just moved here. I nailed a lead and I was in the second uh the first weekend of performances and we were doing a matinee and for those out there who have never done a musical or any sort of theater tech week into opening night is hell and you don't have any you don't have any free time and everybody eats like shit for that week because you just don't have the time like you're running from work straight to rehearsal so everybody's just eating fast food and eating garbage so i did that for a week and my body was not having it. So Sunday matinee, it's intermission, and I am like keeled over in pain. I'm in like I, I I'm like bursting into tears. They're thinking that they're gonna have to have the stage manager go on for me. But again, I'm stubborn, and I don't want anyone <laughs> to ever <laughs> have to help me. Or you know, I I'm a perfectionist, so I suck it up. I go out there, I finish the show, I get in my car, I call my parents, and I'm like, I am in so much pain. I don't know what's going on with me. It's like right underneath my chest. I I don't know what's happening. I think I'm dying. And my mom's like, well, that's dramatic. But if you don't have a doctor, (laughs) just go to the emergency room, you dummy. So luckily, the emergency room was like six blocks away from where I was living. And, you know, I go to the ER. I still have an Illinois license. I'm on my parents' insurance. Like these people looked at me like I was you know, some kind of weird drifter off the street. (laughs) And I just say, I, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm in a lot of pain. I feel like it's acid reflux. I also feel like it's a heart attack. I don't know what the hell's going on with me. Please help me. So they give me a bunch of drugs and I just like 
completely go numb, like I can't move, mm-hmm. but I still feel this horrendous pain and I don't know what's wrong with me. So they, of course, because every doctor in the world, when you're treating a woman with any sort of ailment, they immediately assume you're pregnant. So they said, <laughs> we're going to take an ultrasound. And I'm like, well, you're wasting your time because there is nothing in there, but sure. So they do the ultrasound looking for a baby mm-hmm. and they put like went upwards um, from my uterus towards my abdomen and they saw something and they didn't know what it was. They couldn't get a good look at it because um, they obviously weren't giving me an ultrasound where my pancreas is located. They were looking at my uterus, right. but somehow in like the pathway, like they had crossed part of my, my pancreas and there was, you know, the abnormality. So then they give me the CT scan. Mind you, at this point, I'm freaking the fuck out. Oh like, God. I've never had this many scans in my life. Yeah. This seems, you know, completely overkill for what I thought was like acid reflux or something really small. Yeah, just give me some Tums or something. Right, exactly. Good, right? I was like, <laughs> I was like, maybe it's gas. Like, how, yeah. how do I know? I've been eating Carl's so. Jr. for a week. I don't know. <laughs> I've been eating Panda Express like it's going out of business. Are you kidding me? It's just the orange chicken. <laughs> their orange chicken's so good it's such trash but it's so good um so i get i get the scan and um this like this doctor comes in who i don't know if it was like his first week on the job or what was going on but he looked like he'd seen a ghost and at that point i'm like oh they're about to give me some really not fun news yeah and he goes hey um we're not sure what we saw but we saw something and we're going to transfer you to the main campus downtown Cleveland for a biopsy. Mm. And I will be the first to admit, I don't think I processed that he said biopsy Mm -hmm. until I got there. Mm -hmm. Like in my head, I was like, okay, another test. Fine. Sure. Whatever. It's just like a shot or something yeah yeah i was like okay just another test i would probably do the same thing yeah i was like they just probably gotta get like you know a new a new thing and then i'm carted away in the ambulance and i'm like i the the drive was so long it was so long and the whole time i'm like why do they have to send me here that doesn't seem right and what's super weird is that before I moved to Cleveland, I used to work at a hotel catering to the Chicago branch of Cancer Treatment Centers of America. Mm. I was around cancer patients and their families 24-7, constantly talking about their medical history, talking about what tests they had to get that day, what treatment plans they were on, everything. And never, like even with all that experience, never once did it process to me like they think i might have cancer like i it just never happened and i kept thinking like i'm 23 like there's no way in hell that that's a thing so i get downtown and at this point um like you know i had to call my boyfriend when he's at work to say hey i'm getting transferred (laughs) and he's freaking the fuck out so Mm -hmm. he meets me down there and we call my parents my parents were visiting my extended family in florida at the time and at this point, like, I'm I'm tired, I'm drugged up, I'm, like, mm-hmm. completely out of it. And I call my mom and I say, hey, um, they transferred me to another hospital. They found something. I have to have a biopsy. And that's when it hit me, was hearing my mom's 
reaction. And I was like, oh, oh yeah, this is really serious. This is, this is really serious. Mm-hmm. So I get the biopsy. They have to keep me obviously. And a doctor and a team come in the next day. If a team of doctors comes in, you should know that is your first sign things are not right. So a team comes in, and I I find out after the fact it's because I'm I am now a case study. Like my oh. medical history is going to end up in textbooks for people wow. who want to study pancreatic cancer because <laughs> I'm still alive, and that doesn't <laughs> happen very often. Um, so they they explained to me that I have a tumor on the tail end of my pancreas. And at the time they thought it was the size of a silver dollar. The emergency room said it was the size of a quarter. The biopsy said it was the size of a silver dollar. Post-surgery, it was the size of a tennis ball. So I don't know (laughs) what was going on there, but it was huge. So obviously it has to come out. They tell me that I'm going to need radiation, I'm going to need chemo, I'm going to need all this stuff. And I'm getting all this information, and I have no one. I have the boyfriend that I moved to Cleveland for, and that's it. I have no friends. I have no coworkers at this point. I have a couple of people that I'm doing a play with who've only known me for like a month. Yeah. I know no one. So I'm just alone and hearing the news like, hey, you're going to die. And of course, because I'm an idiot, the first thing I did was Google, which was the <laughs> oh, worst thing no. I could have done. No, no. Because the oh, second I God. did that, it's just like, hey, 4% chance of survival in the US, 3% yeah. chance of survival in the UK. I was like, oh, my God. Like yeah, this yeah, is- Google just says, hey, what's up? Uh, you're fucked. Yeah, pretty much. And um, <laughs> and then, you know, I'm telling my family and my sister was really the only one who had kind of a sense of humor about it. And she's like, man, you can't do anything small. Like <laughs> you were like the epitome of go big or go home, even in the negative sense. Like you couldn't get pneumonia. You couldn't sprain your ankle. You had to get the deadliest cancer you could possibly get. It's <laughs> like, yeah, that's that's a fair point. Yeah. So that happens and you know i I break the news to everybody everyone's kind of devastated and they you know start my treatment plan i I get some chemo they look at it after chemo and it's doing nothing like my body's completely unresponsive for it to it so they took me off it which i was very appreciate appreciative of because chemo's not chemo's not fun i mean no is it um is it like it's like an injection type of thing? Like how? Like well, there's there's a couple of different totally ways you can do it. You can yeah, you is. can you can get the injection, which it's basically like flushing your body with poison. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. there's also like pill forms now. Like there's right, there's right. a lot of different ways to do right. it. But you know, I had I had the injection, and they were hoping to try to shrink the tumor a little bit. They were hoping that like the chemo would attack it and make it smaller so that it would be easier to remove and that I wouldn't have to have Mm -hmm. such extensive surgery. But when they realized that like I was not responding to it at all, 
after, you know, first round treatment, they were like, you're really young and this will have permanent damage. So we're going to take you off it and we're just going to have to, you know, do some, some surgery. Yeah. So they ended up taking half of my pancreas, the tumor, my entire spleen Hmm. and uh, 22 lymph nodes. And in those 22 lymph nodes, there was cancer present in the two that were closest to the tumor and all of my surgery, um, like all the surgery sites. So what they determined was that they had caught it as it was beginning to spread to the rest of my body. Wow. So after that, um, you know, I, I did get some, some radiation treatment. I do still get it every once in a while. Mm -hmm. Um, just because it is so deadly that it's kind of caution. I'm kind of a cautionary tale in a Mm -hmm. sense. Like they want to make sure that whatever is in me stays dead because it's, it's pretty impossible to flush every single cell from your body. Yeah. Um, that's, that's what blows my mind about cancer. Um, especially when it comes around your internal organs. We have, I have a cousin, my wife's cousin, he had like stomach cancer and Mm -hmm. he he still has it. He's still, uh, going through treatments and everything. And it's like, it's like, we can't take out all your organs that are infected with this. this Right. (laughs) Exactly. they, They have to like figure out how much they can take out and then hope that the radiation and chemo kills the rest. It's exactly. That's that's pretty much what it is. And yeah. at this point, because because of my age, they're very concerned about what they want to provide as treatment. Mm-hmm. Because when you're... I ended up having more hospital visits from complications from surgery than I yeah. did from actual like cancer treatment. And part of that is because there's not a lot of research or information on younger people with pancreatic cancer. So the average person the average age of a person who's diagnosed with pancreatic cancer I believe is 57. Um the overwhelming majority like people like me are why that average like ends up being somewhere like in the late 50s. But people yeah. usually don't know they have pancreatic cancer until it's way too late because there really aren't any symptoms of it. Um, you know, the the fact that they caught mine was a complete fluke. The feelings that I had, like, you know, the pain that I felt was because I was eating shit for a week. It had nothing yeah. to do with the cancer. Like, they just happened to find it when they were looking for something else. Like, right, it had, right. they they had nothing to do with each other. My symptoms had nothing to do with the cancer. So, <laughs> so it was... It was- literally probably just indigestion like hardcore. yeah absolutely it was indigestion. like it was indigestion from That's eating crazy. like shit for a week and because they wanted to make assumptions and think that i was pregnant they found cancer yeah. like it, again pure luck and had had i not done that musical i would not have eaten like shit for a week mm-hmm. and i would not have you know gotten sick and i would have gone to the hospital or if i didn't move to cleveland you know, I would have just gone to my primary care physician and he would have told me I had indigestion and to drink some Pepto and shake it off. Like there's, there would have been no urge to be like, hey, we don't have any of your medical history. So we're just going to look at everything like that wouldn't have happened. So pure luck. Um, But part of, part of the complications 
that I had from it was because they couldn't give me an accurate timeline for recovery. And my body and like my muscle memory bounced back a lot faster than would say like a 60 year olds would post surgery. So I was bouncing around and, you know, going to the store and trying to like go back to tap class and like teach baton still. And um, that's when I like, started getting all these complications. I got pancreatitis twice. If you've ever had pancreatitis before, like it is, I would not wish it on my enemies. Like pancreatitis is exponentially worse than cancer. It is horrible. And I got it twice because I was like, well, I feel fine. So sure, I'm going to go walk around. But my insides were like, you're not fine. Um, they've, they've ended up having to kind of play like a weird game of like mousetrap with my internal organs, like things are connected in places now that they probably shouldn't be because I get fluid collections and it's, it's a, it's a mess. Like my stomach looks like a post-apocalyptic wasteland at this point with scar tissue. But I mean, I'd rather have that than be dead. So, (laughs) um, but yeah, I mean, I, I had to do that for the most part alone. Like my parents came, during my initial surgeries and they were wonderful. My mom, you know, binged all of Orange is the New Black with me because I, I'm on bed rest. What else, what else am I going to do? But for the most part, like I, I did it on my own and I had the option to go back to Chicago. I could have gone back to Chicago and gone to the cancer treatment centers of America and been around all of my family and all of my friends and had the biggest support system in the world. But I was like, but I don't want that. Like, I don't want to go through the hardest, most vulnerable thing I've ever been through and have an entire community staring me down. I don't need that. Like, I'd rather do this alone. And if I get through it on my own, I get through it on my own. If I don't, then, you know, the only person that I had to depend on was myself. And I, at least at that point, I know that I did everything in my power that I possibly could have. If I would have gone home, like it just, it would have been a mess. It would have been, ugh. If you're going to get sick anywhere in the world, Cleveland is the place to get sick. They have some of the best hospitals in in the country. And I am forever grateful for the people at the University Hospitals Seidman Center. You know, they saved my life. And, you know, I it it frustrates me whenever people tell me, you know, you know, well, God did this and you know, it's a miracle. He saved you. He touched you. And it's like, I, I'm very understanding and appreciative of people that believe that to be true. Because I, I don't think that people who believe, you know, oh, God saved my life. I don't believe that they're stupid. I don't think that I don't think negatively towards people like that. But to me, I think that it does such a grave disservice to my doctors, to my nurses, to the people who spent, you know, years of their lives preparing and learning how to treat people like me. And they're the ones who did the work. Like whenever people tell me like, oh, you're so brave, you're so strong. It's like, man, I laid in bed all day and watched the sci-fi channel and had snacks delivered to me. And every once in a while complained because my Dilaudid ran out. Like I didn't do shit. I was not the like there was a 12 like a 12 hour surgery. I don't know what happened. I wasn't there. I was passed out. My doctor, however, 
Um, he did all that work. And if anyone deserves to be told that they're strong or they're incredible or that they're anything, it's my doctors. And I don't know. I think it's that perspective that a lot of people don't have. And I try to, I try to stress that as much as I can whenever I talk about being ill. Our mutual friend, James Harris, him, I had started running and and trying to get back in shape and he hit me up online through Facebook or something like that because he was wanting to kind of start doing the same thing. So he started running and he, and you know, we would encourage each other. He would get a couple miles in. I'd be like, good job, man. You know, and I got got a couple miles in and here and there. And we'd always kind of, you know, encourage each other when, when we would go on a run and things like that. And because he started running, apparently he had some sort of I don't know if it was like a blood cancer or something, but it moved because he was starting to do cardiovascular exercises, the blood in his legs carried it up towards his tort, like, you know, towards the middle of his body because of all the cardio he was doing. And, um, you know, eventually I don't, I don't even know how long he had, he was battling cancer. It was a good couple, two, three years. Yeah. Yeah. He did. He had a, a, a long ish battle, but I mean, yeah. Obviously, when you pass, it's too short. Yeah. Um, so it was just crazy because when I asked him about it, he was like, yeah, the running was what made it all go faster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is and- a trip to me because I was just trying to be, you know, just a good encouragement. Yeah, let's get in shape. Let's do this. And uh, it was well, that's a, one bit of the- of a, a bit of a mind fuck for sure. Oh. Well, that's one of the weird things that I've been dealing with in recovery is that, you know, I joke a lot that I'm the only person in history that gets cancer and gets fatter um, (laughs) because my body has, you know, I'm missing half of a pancreas and my body, you know, doesn't know what to do with sugar. So, um, I mean, for those who don't know, like your pancreas is, you know, kind of what regulates your sugar. And, you know, if I'm at high risk for diabetes when I get older now because I don't have the full organ. Um, But I asked, you know, well, should I cut down on sugar? Like, should that be a thing? And they're like, oh, God, no, because if you do that, then your pancreas will get lazy because it won't be working and it won't be doing anything. So it's very much a damned if you do, damned if you don't. It's like either I cut out sugar and run the risk of my organ failing or I keep sugar in my diet, keep my organ working and gain 45 pounds <laughs> but it's wow bodies are yeah. weird man bodies are super yeah. weird <laughs> i mean me my puppy ate an earring and shat it out without any internal problems bodies that's, in general whether that's human crazy or dog i apparently <laughs> yeah but if your dog eats a grape or chocolate like it's the end of the world so i think <laughs> i still think humans are a little bit more resilient right, 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 right. than dogs We're, yeah yeah, yeah we, we have to eat like literal poison that would like destroy <laughs> our internal organs whereas like <laughs> i don't know humans are weird <laughs> so so how would you say like so moving through this battle of cancer when can we say that fuck cancer, it's done, BJ's good. Is there an end point to that or is this something you're going to be dealing with basically year after year as um, far as them monitoring? I have until 2019 until I can say with like full certainty like cancer free. 
Um, I when still, that happens, I am flying to wherever you're at in this country. <laughs> Hopefully, I'll not be to, living in Cleveland by then. Hopefully, I'll well, be. Well, we are going to party down. That's, that's oh yeah, when when that happens, happen. like it's I'm partying like it's 1999. Are you mm-hmm. kidding me? Um, <laughs> but that's it's actually funny that you bring that up because for the last, you know, two years or so, I've kind of let that be my scapegoat for everything. I mean, hmm. sometimes I like, I'm an asshole about it when like my boyfriend will be like, Oh, you need to take out the trash or you need to do this. And I'll be like, I can't, I have cancer. I can't do it. <laughs> Which is just to be an asshole. Um, <laughs> but you know, I've been trying to move to the West coast my whole life. And after I got sick, that became the big thing was, you know, well, I can't go because I can't afford to be a starving artist. I have Mm -hmm. to pay for treatment, which I still get, which I still pay for. And, you know, I can't, I can't go somewhere and not have health insurance, which that is true. I cannot not have health insurance. Um, so I, you know, I, I beat cancer, but I also lost three years of my life. I lost three years of like kind of my prime years, my like my early 20s where I'm supposed to be finding myself and, you know, starting my career, starting my life. And that was taken from me. And some days I'm I'm really resentful of that. But then at the same time, like it's more of a motivating factor because there's a huge difference between being alive and living your life. And I think for a while I was just alive. And I think in the last six months or so, I've finally been like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to live. I'm going to live. I got the second chance on life and I don't want to, I don't want to waste it. So let's, okay. So, I mean, cancer, the whole cancer battle as of now, I mean, that's a huge, I mean, life altering experience. And so it sounds, so it sounds like through your, through your childhood and how you, grew up and, and into high school years and through, through that you are, you were already, you know, uh, a strong woman at the time, strong young woman. And I think that prepared you for your cancer battle. So now you're doing, um, doing a lot of, you're doing a lot of writing mainly in the horror genre mm-hmm. is, is what you do a lot of writing in a lot of, a lot of women empowerment things. And we've talked about this, uh, on some other podcasts, you know what I'll do is in the show notes I'll put some. There's a couple podcasts that you and I have done for the Screamcast where you talk about you know um, I don't know I can't remember what we exactly we talked about. And then there's a Shockwaves uh, podcast where you talk about you know the rape revenge films and things like that. So I think there's a lot of things like that that people can listen on, on top of this interview. I think and get yeah. a, a good sense to to that thing. But um, for starters, though, like the horror community, like a lot of people kind of on the outside looking in and, you know, I've always people always give me weird, you know, side eye looks when I when I'm saying like, yeah, I'm a huge horror fan. I love it. Um, you know, but I'm also grew up in Christian circles. I I still go to, I, you know, I recently started going going back to church. My wife um, is very much a, um, a believer. We, we have our differences of opinion on 
Christianity itself, but you know, like we're a church going family now. And Mm -hmm. you know, when I bring up the horror movies I watched, the screamcast, I kind of get some weird looks because in general, a lot of people think that horror in general is a more misogynistic, uh, genre of films. You have the exploitation films, you have, um, let me have more horror movies where of course in a straight slasher, you're going to have, you know, there's going to be some topless women and there's going to be, you know, all that stuff. But I think on the other hand, I think it's just like with any genre, there's two sides, I think, to that. Um, oh, so if absolutely. you can expand a little bit, like what drew you to horror originally? I think we already touched on that a little bit. And then um, how, as, as, a, as a strong woman, like how do you look at these different types of horror films? Like do you think horror in general is misogynistic or is that just kind of, um, you know, a small percentage of, of that genre? I think the important distinction to make is that you can have a movie with misogynist characters and the film itself not be misogynist. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think people forget that sometimes. Horror is a way for us to deal with our biggest fears. And it's, you know, something I say pretty frequently, but fear is the most universal emotion. Everybody is afraid of something. But what makes us feel afraid is not universal what is scary to me might be funny to somebody else and vice versa like i i'm terrified of lawn gnomes most people laugh at that and that's fine (laughs) but i can also withstand like brutal awful gore and really you know kind of traumatizing imagery and be completely unaffected so you know it's it's different strokes for different folks um But horror explores kind of our deepest, darkest fears. And for a lot of people, you know, misogynists are some of our deepest fears. And I'm not saying that Mm -hmm. in the sense of like, you know, oh, oh, my idea of a horror movie is like people who hate women. Like, that's not what I'm trying to say. But if you look at something like The Stepford Wives, if you look at something like, um, like the number 12 looks like you episode of the twilight zone those are both instances where like misogyny is the monster Mm -hmm. and it's very very terrifying and i think you can explore those sorts of behaviors in horror films and that doesn't that doesn't mean that the films are encouraging the mistreatment of women if anything it's vilifying it like you're not supposed to root for jason Voorhees. you're not supposed to root for michael myers so when they do kill women when they do all these awful things you're not meant to identify with them you're meant to be afraid of them you're meant to see them as bad people and therefore misogyny is bad um and i think that that that's hard for people to stomach because it's it's a lot easier to say Game of Thrones is misogynist because it has rape on their episodes rather than say, hey, um, maybe by showing how brutal it is, it'll actually hammer home the point to a lot of people how serious of an issue this is. Mm -hmm. Because if we keep talking about it, like I, I look at like assault or misogyny or whatever. Uh, in our media, the same way that I, I think about like the dare programs in school. When you talk about, drugs and how bad they are but you don't actually show them for real and Mm -hmm. show the side effects for real of what happens 
it just makes people want to try it even more because now it's like this special secret thing that they want to they want to know more about and the same thing happens with you know misogyny or sexual assault in our media is that if you don't address it for how disgusting and terrible it really is then it becomes this thing that people don't understand and they're you know completely unaffected by it yeah um i tell you what like uh seeing like in our sex education when i was younger um like seeing like actual like pictures of like gonorrhea and stuff like that that kept me a virgin for a long ass time it right? wasn't like it's christian like- convictions it was like I don't necessarily maybe want my dick to fall off. Right, exactly. (laughs) And like, I'm not trying to say that like you should just traumatize people and scare them into things because scare tactics are also bad. But like, just be honest with people about it. Like, hey, this is what happens. Look, Um, you you, you do this unprotected, this could happen. Like, right, exactly. It's the could. It's not the, you don't. "Ah, Okay. Yeah, you don't want to do the mean girls like don't have sex because you'll get pregnant and die. Like you don't want to have that, but you do need to have like the frank discussion of like, hey, this is a possibility. Be aware. Like yeah. sex is pretty awesome. It feels great. Like mm-hmm. you're gonna have a good time until you don't have a good time. So be careful. Exactly. Like and that's and that's what you have to do. <laughs> um so I you know, a lot of people like to say that horror films are degrading or that, you know, they they mistreat women. But if you look at horror films from a historical standpoint, horror films were some of the first forms of cinema that allowed women to kind of rule the roost of the mm-hmm. storyline. Mm-hmm. I mean, I defend the archetype of the damsel in distress because th- without the damsel in distress, there's no story. Like, the the leading man has nothing to fight for. And yes, it like it is very, very problematic. There are a lot of things wrong with the idea that of women needing to be saved. I get all that. But because of the existence of the damsel in distress, then that also, you know, without that character, there would be no counterculture. And the counterculture of the final girl of, you know, all these different archetype, archetypal characters of, you know, the the strong, resilient woman, like they wouldn't exist if we weren't if we didn't have something to fight against, which, you know, damsel in distress is and horror is kind of the the great grandmother of the damsel in distress idea um so i don't know i i find horror to be endlessly fascinating because mm. it's the one genre film that has never waned in its popularity like yeah. westerns aren't really a thing anymore action films have been completely replaced by superhero films they go in waves but they mm-hmm. it's been completely replaced there's no such thing as like a mid-budget science fiction movie anymore it's either a massive massive film or it's a reboot of star wars and like that's not to say that i don't love the new star wars films but there's really no yeah. original science fiction anymore there's there, really no original there kind, fantasy there kind of is like with science fiction but i feel like they like it's either yeah too much money or just not enough like not right enough. there's there's like, no there's, middle ground there's a recent one that just came out that i guess was just ha- like the effects just hampered it like it was just i can't remember the name of it but i was looking at buying it i was like looking in the store and um and yeah like you're, you're right like we, we don't have like i just recently watched the movie species like we don't have this middling yeah kinda it, sort of good movie but kind of sort of be movie too like yeah it, none it, of that exists anymore yeah. but like horror has been around from 
the, the you know the the age of silent pictures and yeah. it's still around yeah. and we're still experimenting with the monsters of science like of uh si- silent films mm-hmm. and that to me is what's fascinating is that we as a culture are so intrigued by what scares us and we we like that adrenaline rush we mm-hmm. like that safe sense of danger like i am admittedly like one of the biggest scaredy cats that i know i'm you know it doesn't matter how many horror movies i watch i still jump in the theater i still get tense i still want to put my knees up and cover my eyes and that's what's fun about horror for me is i like that feeling Mm -hmm. um and i think that it's it's a good way for people to be able to feel strong because everything in your body is telling you like biologically that this is a fight or flight situation and you are scared mm-hmm. and you are doing it for fun. Like you're willingly putting yourself through what is considered like a dangerous situation for fun. And that's that's fascinating to me. Like I know I'm going to go see it in a couple of weeks and I'm going to freak the fuck out <laughs> and I can't wait. Like I am looking forward to sitting in a theater and screaming my face off. It's going to yeah. be a blast. My daughter wants to see it. She's 12. and uh, I saw the miniseries when I was four and I turned yeah. out fine. Yeah, yeah. So. So I, think, I think, think, hey, we, we may go. I think this is a... Yeah. It's weird because I'm... I'm ra- I'm raising a daughter now and mm-hmm. you know I see so many things through such a different lens now that I, now now that my daughter wants to watch horror movies or has questions like I know that her and my wife have talked sexuality I haven't got into that discussion with her yet I'll be bringing that up with my son I mean I've kind of men- mentioned in passing like you know and she would get embarrassed and be like I don't want to talk about it you know kind of thing um, right, because something someone meant. I think it was. Uh, oh gosh, someone mentioned how babies were made. I was like, "Well, Danny, you know how babies are made now, right?" <laughs> you know? so she's like, "Yeah, well, I don't want, don't want to talk about." Well, it's that. good that you're having these discussions early. I mean, I blossomed before I had the chance to have that talk, hmm. and I was nine years old, and I had a Carrie White experience where I was bleeding and thought I was dying, oh, and then my. my mom showed up at the nurse's office and went, "Oh, I thought I had more time." And I was like, "You knew about this." <laughs> Well, she's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, same same kind of thing happened with with my wife when she was she blossomed early as well, and also she had to get bras early and stuff like that. So, um, like this is things that I have to think about now with with a twelve year old daughter, and um, I mean things are starting to come up with you know like let us know if uh, some guys start getting weird around you and things like that, and she's still a bit oblivious to that. Um, but we're trying to approach that topic, you know, sensi- sensitively and, um, and then, you, I mean, you, you said that you had used horror movies to kind of, you know, help when you were, you were younger, you had a traumatic experience. I don't want to, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to like open old wounds. I don't, I mean, I know that you were, when you were yeah, you kind no, of rolled your eyes about being on shock because <laughs> you're like, yeah, I'm the rape revenge expert. <laughs> no. I'm everyone's, um, I'm, I'm the, uh. I'm the friendly neighborhood rape survivor. Um. <laughs> but it but this is it this is important because you know like we have a you know our current political climate like with I It's mean, important to talk about and it, it I I'm so, a person who is comfortable enough with what happened mm-hmm. to talk. Okay. And I would never in a million years say that, like, if this happened to you, like, it's your duty to talk. Like, I don't believe that at all. Mm -hmm. I think that everybody deals with trauma differently. 
for whatever reason, I have the right balance of nature and nurture where I can talk about these sorts of things openly and not be triggered by it, not be, you know, I, it, it doesn't hinder my, my recovery. Are there days where I feel horrible, like absolutely horrible about the things that have happened to me? Absolutely. I mean, because I'm a human and I'm going to have those days. But for the most part, you know, the the ultimate tool in learning to love myself first and, you know, hopefully somebody else will be able to appreciate me with me, to quote Eartha Kitt, um, was that when I was 14 years old, the first, like, real, real boyfriend that I ever had um, sexually assaulted me at a party um, along with some of his friends. Mm. And it was really traumatic and you know like i previously mentioned i didn't know how to deal with it and i kind of spiraled out of control for a little bit and you know as bad as it sounds like i'm kind of glad that i lost my shit for a little bit um because i think i had a lot more issues underneath you know just with being in the public eye from such a young age Mm -hmm. that i wasn't dealing with and kind of losing my shit allowed me to get those demons out for a little bit but yeah, I mean, I, I was very brutally sexually assaulted, and for a very long time, I, I I didn't know how to feel in my own skin, and mo- more importantly, I did not like how people were treating me, mm. and I think uh, there's such a weird stigma around survivors of sexual trauma. Like, if you get in a car accident and walk away from it, like, oh my God, you're a miracle. Or the fact that I can go into any room in the world and say, I'm a cancer survivor and people will start clapping. Yeah. But when I tell people that I'm a rape survivor, like that's improper dinnertime conversation. <laughs> like we don't want to talk about that. And it's like, well, that's the problem is that nobody is talking about it. Mm-hmm. And because nobody's talking about it, when it does happen, and the the sad truth is that it happens so frequently and yet people still feel like they're alone and that they don't have anyone to talk to they have nowhere to turn they have nothing they have nothing for them and people don't know how to respond when they find out that somebody's been assaulted it's like a, it's an immediate wash of pity mm-hmm. like there are people that find out that i've been assaulted and they treat me like i'm a bruised fruit that like they have to handle me with care because one wrong move and I could be spoiled. And it's like, that's, I'm, I'm a person. Like, that's mm-hmm. not how this works. Does that mean that there are people that are assaulted that never get over it? Absolutely. And like their, their way of processing and mourning is completely valid. But that wasn't my way of processing and mourning. My way of processing and mourning was that I was so sick and tired of being treated like I was fragile. And I turned to cinema and... I went to an old mom and pop video store and they had a copy of the movie Ms. 45, which is a rape revenge movie about a woman who is assaulted twice in one night. And then she goes on like a rampage and starts killing people. Um, And I saw that and I was with it for the first like three quarters of the movie. And then it just kind of turned into like a bloodbath. And I was like, this doesn't really do anything for me. Like, I don't feel justified. I don't feel... I get what they're trying to do, but like it just didn't resonate for me. So I went back to the store, I returned the tape, and dude behind the counter, who he had known me for years 
at this point. So he knew that like I could kind of handle anything. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, if you, if you watched that and if you liked that, you should check out this. And he handed me a VHS copy of day, of the woman, AKA I spit in your grave, which for those that don't know, um, day, of the woman is an infamous, rape revenge film it's a video nasty it's Mm -hmm. banned in a couple countries um it does have a over 20 minute gratuitous rape scene and gratuitous in this not in the sense that it's titillating not in the sense that it's yeah it's it's very very graphic yeah and it's very real and there is the audience gets no luxury of being able to look away from it. Like you watch the whole thing and you watch the aftermath. You watch this poor woman get up and walk through the woods after having been assaulted, like completely nude and nowhere to turn. And that movie, like that, that's what clicked for me was, mm. oh my God, I don't have to be like this. I don't have to be sad all the time. I don't have to act like this is the end of the world and I don't have to let this one moment in my life define me. Mm -hmm. And from that moment on, I did everything that I could to be seen as anything but a victim, to be seen as a survivor because that's what I am. Victims, Victims are people that don't get to reclaim their time. And I, you know... I reclaimed my time. Like that asshole does not get to determine the rest of my life. Right. And, you know, that experience I think is what kind of prepped me for the, the cancer. And, you know, not to mention that, but like my dad was diagnosed with cancer the same time I was. So Mm. like my poor mother is dealing with her husband and her firstborn both dying at the same time. And my dad was diagnosed after me. And I just remember him, you know, being, really upset and him telling me and my response was I had a 4% chance to live and some people give up their kidneys voluntarily. So until you get to my level, I don't want to hear you complain. (laughs) And you know, as, as much as like he laughed, he cried, but then he laughed. I think that had I not gone through both of those like horrible experiences, I would not be able to say things like that. I would not be able to have kind of like the dry sense of humor Mm -hmm. or, you know, kind of the carefree mind about it because at this point, like nothing can shake me. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to call me mean names on the internet. <laughs> I should be dead right now. Shut up. Like you're wasting your time. Um, It, it really does. It takes a lot to shake me at this mm-hmm. point. Like one of the long running jokes is that with all this, like if I, submitted a script to lifetime about the things i've endured in my life they'd send it back for being too unrealistic (laughs) (laughs) but like that that's what it is like and that's that's who i am and while i don't let experiences like sexual assault or cancer define me as a person it's part of who i am Mm -hmm. and it's it's just as much of a part of me as you know, my, my politics or my lack of religion or anything really. I mean, it's, it's, it's part of what has shaped the way that I view the world and I don't view it in like this negative lens. I don't view it in a resentful or angry lens because there's, there's no good comes out of any of that. No, no. 
No, and I, I feel like I'm, uh, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm needing to hear a lot more of that, you know, um, lately, especially like you, you really do come across as, um, I mean, you're, you're someone that, you know, I know that people really shouldn't fuck with and, but you're also someone. Well, that I am know, scary. Like I'm a, I'm a scary Italian bitch. Like, <laughs> but also <laughs> your positivity and especially online, I'm, I, like I, like really, like I only see what you do online and your sense of positivity and you know, your, your struggle, like your, your struggle too with, you know, all of us at some point struggle with a little bit of depression and we, you know, we all feel like we're, we don't stack up and we all have those moments of doubt. Um, you're real about that, but you also grasp everything with, you know, a sort of sense of humor and a strength that is admirable. And that really, um, helps me, you know, get through my days because, you know, I, I deal with a lot of bullshit, but it's not like, you know, my, my bullshit's piddly compared to a lot of other women, uh, a lot of, a lot of women and, and they have to deal with, especially online. I mean, you, you get a lot of creepos, you know, from being, from your writing and everything, <clears throat> uh, people, guys or whatever kind of i don't know if they'd stalk you or whatever or just just not there's you know, gross just gross and <laughs> and i warned um my first the first episode of uh the, my feminism series i warned sarah terrace about this because she's she's a christian she's about to jump into putting out a book um on uh sexuality women you know being a christian woman but also embracing sexuality and i'm like you're gonna start hearing from some creeps <laughs> oh yeah absolutely um and so we got to start wrapping up here. I mean, there's so much more your, your story, your life and who you are is such, there's so many things to talk about. And that's what I think makes you really special in my life as, as someone. I'm glad glad I could be there for you. Yeah. You know, and I mean, you mentioned something about how like your problem, you said your problems are piddly. And I think that the other thing too, like if there's anything that any of your listeners can take away from this discussion is that tragedy, tragedy sparring is not an Olympic sport <laughs> and that everyone is struggling. Everyone yeah, is going yeah. through something really terrible. And like, sure, you, I'm going to be hard pressed to find somebody who's going to be able to top like, you know, like gang rape survival, cancer survivor, dad also having cancer, mm-hmm. best friend dying of mm-hmm. cancer. Like I'm going to be hard pressed to find somebody who's going to top that. And because of that, like, I don't look down at other people's problems to be like, oh, you think you have problems. Let me tell right, you right, about right. real. Like, I don't I don't be- I don't subscribe to that newsletter. And I don't think any of us should mm-hmm. like everyone's problems and feelings are valid. And the sooner we realize that, the sooner that we can better understand each other. And I think, you know, we've you know kind of beat around the bush with, you know, the political climate. Mm-hmm. I think there is just such a lack of empathy in our world today and that's why everyone's so angry all the time is because nobody you know you look at something like black lives matter and people are so stubborn to look and realize have empathy like they're you know black boys are being killed in the street every single day or you know you look at you know the the trans lives and it's like you don't have to agree with them but you can't deny the fact that they're being murdered and you know you're gonna try to act like it's the same thing as like oh i can't say merry christmas at walmart like (laughs) 
<laughs> dude, fuck off. It's not the same thing. Have some empathy for somebody that isn't like you. Yeah. And, you know, once once we have that sense of empathy and that sense of understanding and that willingness to say, hey, we're different. I may not agree with you. I may not even like you, but I respect you. Everything changes. Yeah. Everything changes. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's awesome. Awesome perspective to have for sure. Yeah. Well, so, well, it's, it's the only one that I got. Hey. So <laughs> might as well be true yeah. to it. I mean, like I said, there's a lot more we can, we can go into, um, running, running out of time. Um, but what's, uh, what would your advice be to, to any, to any woman that has gone through, I mean, for me, I mean, I, I empathize a lot with, with different people. I always seem to, you know, empathize with someone who's a little more downtrodden or has been through some shit. Like I always bring myself to their level and, and like I'll sit in my car and just think about someone and the, the stuff they're going through and I'll like just weep. Like I can, um, and I always worry about everyone else and, um, oh, I'm the same way. I'm a it, professional bleeding heart. Oh God, it's it's like sometimes I'm like, can I just can I just be an asshole today and not worry? Like I'll try to put up a front, <laughs> like an asshole front, and then like I'll read something and I'll just be like, uh-huh, <laughs> I feel for you. <laughs> um, and I mean, I mean, just just recently you brought something to my attention, you know about you know about about straight up redemption and about repent like in a sense repentance and how people can change i mean i always like Mm -hmm. look for the best in people and i always sometimes need to be reminded about that but um Mm -hmm. your ability to go through everything um including you know sexual assault like i think i feel like sexual assault is a big thing and what what would your advice be to a, a, a woman who has gone through that and is either scared to talk about it, doesn't know how people are, are going to react? Like, if your knowledge with your knowledge is there anything you can kind of lead a woman to that would help? Because that's something that I feel like. I mean, people always talk like, "Well, why didn't that woman come out fifteen years earlier, twenty mm-hmm. years earlier, earlier, and, and give her story?" You know, you know, Bill with Bill Cosby being in the news, you know, these women acu- accusing our president when he was running uh, for office of of sexual assault. You know, this isn't something you want to run out and just tell someone. Like, what would your advice be right. to, to a woman who's been through that? So. My my advice for that is is always the same. Number one, everything that you're feeling is absolutely correct. There is no right or wrong way to deal with trauma. And anyone who tells you otherwise is completely misinformed. Like if you are feeling sad, you're correct. If you're angry, you're correct. If you feel nothing, you're correct. And that's because we all deal with things differently. But if you... If you yourself know that you need help or that you need someone to talk to, there are endless resources. You know, reach reach out to to a friend, a therapist, a you know, a stranger. Sometimes a stranger helps. I mean, I I get messages from both men and women constantly. People that I've never met, people that, you know, have come across 
something I've written, something I've, you know, guested on a podcast, and they just reach out and they say, hey, I just need to tell somebody about this. I don't want to tell my mom. I don't want to tell my friend. I don't want to tell my husband. I don't want to tell anybody, but I just need to tell somebody. And, you know, I, I welcome that with open arms. And I'm not the only kind of person out there that's like that. There are plenty of people who want to be there for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to say like it is going to take some homework to fit. It's just like any other thing. You have to figure out what fits for you. You know, find somebody who may share the same ideals as you or, you know, challenge yourself. Find somebody who doesn't have the same ideals as you. I mean, a lot of people I know sometimes can be hesitant because, you know, I am an atheist. Like I, I don't believe in God and I'm not going to present you know, my, my advice is never going to be something that's rooted in scripture. Mm-hmm. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but because that's just not how I dealt with it. I dealt with it in, you know, kind of a, a very, a very humanist sense of the word, because that's, that's what's true to me. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, sometimes it's important to open your eyes um, to other, to other to other ways of dealing than the ones that you've expected. I know people who are staunch Christians that have found, you know, solace in Buddhist teachings. Mm -hmm. They may not necessarily believe in Buddha, but they like the teachings that go along with it. And I think that's what's most important is find find what works for you. And don't be afraid if what works for you is something something different, something outside of your comfort zone. Like for me, my my comfort was those rape revenge films, films that I told myself I was never going to watch because I thought they were disgusting. And then I watched them and they changed my life. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're never going to know unless you walk a mile, you know, in someone else's shoes. And you may find out that those shoes don't fit and that the ones that you're wearing work just fine. And that's, that's totally cool. But find out what works best for you and don't be afraid to admit that that's what works. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Um, yeah. If if this is something you you struggle with, you don't you, and you don't really know uh, who to reach out to. I mean, on the axpx.com, there's a contact link. Drop me a line. I can always send you to some resources, possibly along to someone who can possibly would be avail, available to listen. Um, you know, I always. I always say, you know, uh, if you, if, if you don't, if you feel like you don't have someone to talk to, reach out to those around you who can possibly listen this podcast and everything. I want to be at least have a way for you to kind of start a conversation with someone. So please, uh, feel free at the axpx.com. Click the contact, uh, page, Drop me a line. I can always, with all the people I've talked to throughout this podcast, the people I know, I can always find you the resources to at least help you along and get someone to talk to. Because I think that's the huge, that's a huge step, I think, with anyone who's dealing with this stuff. So, BJ. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking with me um, about Thank all this. Thank you for having me. Of course. You know, we talk- I never get to talk about this sort of stuff. We always- it's always, let's talk about blood and guts. <laughs> let's talk about some, some bullshit horror movie. <laughs> But uh, yeah. your, you know, your story really uh, is is something that I think a lot of people do need to hear. And there's even more to the story. And you know, I'm I'm there's other things down the line. I'll probably have you back to talk about for sure. And uh, awesome. Well, I would love to return. So people can, can find you. You know, when it, I uh, I lost all the links. Um, where where can people find you on online if they want to drop you a line? Uh, the on all forms of social media, it's just my name, BJ Colangelo. Um, I'm most active on Twitter. Um, Facebook, I try not to add people that I don't know personally mm-hmm. because 
creeps exist <laughs> sorry <laughs> a couple couple weirdos ruined it for everyone yeah. um but twitter twitter's kind of the main one and then instagram if you want to look at like weird selfies and <laughs> all the stupid things that i find around cleveland um so that's the easiest place to find me um i write all over all over the place but um you can find that on my twitter awesome. as well and then um whenever we can make the timing work right i'm co-host on the screencast <laughs> your co-host Timey's a bitch with these, uh, with the the time differences. It's with ridiculous. with you hoes being in different area ah. codes. Yes, it's it's yeah. terrible. Yeah. You'll hear hear more of BG over at thescreamcast.com and uh, and and everything. So, BG, thanks again for talking with me, and uh, you know, catch you again on the next thing on the next thing that you're on for sure. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Thanks for having me. I've had the pleasure of dialoguing with a few of you who've listened to past shows about things you've struggled with, um, things in these shows that have touched you, and it's been very fulfilling and even overwhelming for me. Um, I want to thank those of you who've dropped me a line and and uh, and contacted me. It's, it really does mean a lot that these episodes touch you and uh if you'd like to drop me a line available on twitter at the axpx also you can email uh go to the axpx.com slash contact and there's a contact form right there you can easily drop me a line my email is also sean s-e-a-n at the axpx.com feel free please to to drop me a line let me know what you think of these episodes if you have any uh you know, questions, concerns, constructive criticism, uh, or even ideas for future episodes. But most importantly, if you feel like you don't have anyone to talk to about certain things, please reach out. And if I can't feel the question or the concern, I know people who can. And, you know, no one should ever feel like they're alone in their journey. So that's, that's really what this whole thing started as a way for me to kind of cope with what I was going through in my faith journey. So, um, no, there's, 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 there's those of you out there and I'm, you know, I'll do my best to be there for you too. So I want to thank all of you for listening. Like I said, if you feel like you want to donate, uh, to the show, the best bet is through Patreon. You'll get a bonus podcast every week a little more personal podcast called The AXPX Diaries. I want to thank all of you for listening and dialoguing with me throughout the week. It really does mean a lot to hear from you, and I'll talk to you all next time. Thanks.